Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Historically Speaking Podcast, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 22 years. Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of Historically Speaking Podcast. Today's episode is Staying Alive. Staying Alive. In very unlikely circumstances. Yes, very grueling circumstances, to put it mildly. There were a lot of people we could have put on this episode. Yes, and we narrowed it down to two. To two. Yes. So, number one number on one our list. deals with Xenophon and the 10,000. Okay, I've never heard of this guy. You never heard of Xenophon. Well, Xenophon lived at a time when ancient Greece was at its height. He was born around 430, 428 BC, and he would live to around 350 BC. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Xenophon was everything. He was a soldier. He was a statesman. He was a great writer. He wrote on virtually every topic, horsemanship, farming, the Spartan constitution, his most famous work is known as the Anabasis, which literally means something like up-marching. 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 It's a hard word to translate directly from the ancient Apparently. Greek. Apparently. Right. And uh, having studied ancient Greek, I can tell our listeners it is a very difficult language, but a very precise language, very geared to precision overall in philosophy and history and so on. Kind of like the Greeks themselves. Well, the ancient Greeks, I think, are about the most original people that have ever lived on Earth. I might put them number one. Wow. They invented philosophy. They invented democracy. They came very close to inventing the scientific method. Uh, they produced tremendous art. They were great warriors. They did so much. Great theater. Great theater, absolutely. Uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Aristophanes and so on. All the Cles. All the Cles, okay. Um, anyway, Xenophon is born about 430, 428 B.C., the 5th century BC is when ancient Greece is really at its height. Uh, ancient Greek civilization had lasted for many, many hundreds of years before that, even stretching back to the Mycenaean period and even earlier than that. But by the 6th and 5th century BC, ancient Greece was reaching a real pinnacle with respect to uh, its accomplishments civilization-wise. From 499 to 449 BC, the ancient Greeks did something that was very, very rare. They temporarily united against a common foe, the Persians. Oh, the Greeks united with yes. themselves? Because Greece, ancient Greece was not a country. Ancient Greece was a series of city-states. There were over 1,000 city-states in ancient Greece. Wow. And they oftentimes fought each other. They were very jealous of one another. Ancient uh, Greece itself is a very mountainous country. It's beautiful, but very highly mountainous, very difficult to farm in most areas. And this mountainous terrain makes it much less likely you're going to have a unified polity because uh, all the people were so divided from one another because of the mountains everywhere. Now, how different were the borders from what the borders of Greece are today? Roughly the same with the two exceptions. One, ancient Greece extended further north, say, into what is now southern Albania and so on. And especially, and this is most important, 
what is now the western part of Turkey on the other side of the Aegean Sea. That oh. was also part of Greece, which, I of see. course, it is not now. It's only uh, Greece on the western side of the Aegean, with the exception of some islands that hug the Turkish coast, like Rhodes and Lesbos, etc. Okay. So it was more expansive. But the Greeks were very <laughs> divisive, to put it mildly. And in fact, they fought a brutal, brutal civil war shortly after they defeated the Persians. This is known as the Peloponnesian War, which was fought from 431 to 404 BC. It basically did to ancient Greece what World War I and World War II did to Europe. It largely destroyed it. Wow. And it's very sad. It's very tragic. Uh, it was Athenians and their allies against the Spartans and their allies. And they basically butchered one another. And Xenophon lives during this time. Xenophon is an Athenian, although he will become very pro-Spartan. And he went on a march in 401 B.C., what occurred was this. By 401 BC, the Peloponnesian War was over. Greece was devastated. But the Persian Empire still existed. The Persian Empire extended the whole way back to the 6th century BC when Cyrus the Great uh, founded it. He's known as Koresh in the Bible. So were they still a threat then? Oh, okay. yes. Persia was a vast empire and uh, its king, the Shah, was very powerful. Did he have his eyes on Greece? Oh, Persia had its eyes on everything, Egypt, India, <laughs> um, Greece. That's why you had a 50-year war of Persia versus Greece in the early 5th century, which, to the surprise of many, the Greeks won. But the Persians actually admired the Greeks, and the Greeks, some Greeks kind of sort of admired the Persians. This is a truly large empire, stretching from India to the Black Sea, from Egypt up to the Caspian Sea, into what is now Afghanistan, and so on. This is a vast empire run by the King of Kings, the Shana Shah, the Shah. And Darius II was a Shah that existed from 424 to 404 BC. When he died in 404 BC, which just happened to be the same year the Peloponnesian War in Greece came to an end, his older son Artaxerxes became the new Shah. But Artaxerxes had a younger brother named Cyrus. In fact, he's known as Cyrus the Younger. Oh. And he wanted the throne. And this takes me to Xenophon and the 10,000 and all of that. Cyrus the Younger, in 401 BC, enlisted the Greeks as mercenaries. A lot were Spartans, but they came from other city-states too. Xenophon was in this mix. And there were over 10,000 of them. So what did they entice them with? Money? Yes, power? Cyrus enticed them with money, although he had a very hard time at times paying them money. Uh, he was able to manage that on a couple of occasions. But the plan was for the Greeks, along with Persians that sided with Cyrus, to march deep into the heart of the Persian Empire and take on his older brother Artaxerxes and his forces, defeat him, kill him, and then Cyrus become the new Shah. And so these Greek mercenaries, and Greek soldiers were very highly prized in the ancient world. They were excellent. They were superb fighters, and Cyrus knew that. So with his own forces of about 20,000 plus over 10,000 Greeks, Cyrus marches deep into the Persian Empire, and at the Battle of Canoxa, September 3rd, 401 BC, he takes on his brother and his forces. The Greeks were on the right flank, and they did their job. Uh, in the battle, the right flank, which was the Greek flank, decimated the Persians. Cyrus was in the middle, and while this was going on, Cyrus decided to go headlong straight for his brother and kill him. Well, Cyrus was killed. Whoops. And Artaxerxes 
prevailed. In fact, Artaxerxes would reign for about 50 years or something like that. Wow. But here was the problem. The Greeks were some 15, 16, 1700 miles deep within the Persian Empire, far away from Greece. They had done their job in the battle. But the battle was lost. But now their leader was dead. Well, yes, uh, not their Greek leaders, but yes, Cyrus, their But the ally. whole reason they were there. That's why they were there. So they knew that if they did not get out of the Persian Empire, they would either be slaughtered by the Persians or they would be sold as slaves. Only a terrible fate awaited them. And so they decided to begin a march of some 15, 16, 1700 miles back to Greece. And they encountered all kinds of difficulties. At first, there were five generals. They were called Stratigoi. Uh, this is where we get such a word as strategy. So I just have a quick question. Sure. How many of the original were killed in that battle? Not many. Uh, there were very, almost no Because Greek. they won their, they, they, their part. Their part of the battle, they won. They lost virtually no one. But Cyrus was killed. His so how were. did they escape being captured there? Well, there were 10,000 of them or thereabouts, and uh, they decided that they would march back and they would take on all forces because they knew that if they didn't do this, they would be either killed, sold into slavery, or something like that. Right. So they begin to march back. Now, they originally had five leaders. Uh, the top leader was named Clearchus. Uh, he was a Spartan. He was treacherously, and the other four were treacherously killed by a subordinate of Artaxerxes named Tissaphernes. And once they were killed, in fact, four of them were beheaded, Oh my god. They were invited to a feast to talk with uh, to They were tricked. And they were tricked. And and so then what happened was new leaders were elected. New another five. Xenophon was one of them. Xenophon and others. Now who I guess the just the soldiers themselves decided. They elected him. That's they right. elected them. Right. Okay. And Xenophon had a reputation already for being a very reliable, capable individual. They had so many obstacles to overcome. They had to overcome all kind of mountainous terrains, fording rivers. They had to overcome hostile tribes that even the Persians had difficulty keeping down. Uh, they like the Cardusians. I have a quick question. Mm -hmm. The Cardusians. Sorry, it just made me think of the Kardashians. Um, <laughs> no, question. it's not the Kardashians. <laughs> okay, just to be that, clear. That could make for a good parody, though. I know, right? Yeah. My question is, didn't they have to go through all of this to get there in the first place? Yes, but they had Cyrus and 20,000 of his men on his side, and they marched in, and they were a very formidable force until the battle. When Cyrus was killed, his forces were dispersed, and now these Greeks but are But as far as are, the elements and such, they yeah. had already battled them to get there. Yes, but they didn't have to battle. Well, first of all, they, if you look at the march they take, they went a southern route. Okay, Now they're going to take a northern route to head for the Black Sea. Okay. And their idea was to get to the Black Sea and then take ships home to uh, to Greece. Well, they marched. I mean, this we're talking about five months of, of true hardship where they had to take on hostile tribes, Persian forces that attacked them. They were faced with starvation. They were faced with all kinds of uh, inclement weather. But by the end of January of 400 B.C., they had reached the Black Sea. In fact, when the soldiers first saw the Black Sea, they, they yelled, Thalata, Thalata, the sea, the sea. They, they knew they had made it. And then many of them took ships back to uh, the Lespont in that area and got back to Greece. Some of them still marched across what is now northern Turkey, then Asia Minor. And when Xenophon got back, he wrote about this. This is this famous work, the Anabasis. This is about the march, oh, that's the march of the 10,000. And it is an extraordinary work. And Xenophon was a great writer, a very beautiful, precise Greek. 
And he wrote this work, which survived, and it is considered, you know, one of the great masterpieces of ancient Greek literature. It is very famous. It has been Did edited. anyone else write about this event? Or just him? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, there might have been others. Oh, by the way, Xenophon, this is just to give you another example of what a Renaissance man he was. He'd studied under Socrates. He knew Socrates. Wow. And so this was a man who was a philosopher, a politician, a soldier, a writer, everything. And actually, the Spartans gave him an estate, even though he was an Athenian. They gave him an estate in the northwestern Peloponnesus. And he spent a lot of years there. And this is where he did a lot of his writing. But the Anabasis, uh, this March of the 10,000, is one of the great adventure stories of all time. I mean, about 6,000 men made it back. Wow, so they lost So they lost thousands. But they had to take on so many obstacles of all kinds. And it is a classic example of staying alive. Wow, I can't imagine under those circumstances. And Xenophon lived to an old age, as I mentioned before. He was around 80 or something when he died. That's really impressive. A lot of ancient Greeks lived to an old age. They had a very good diet, very great uh, climate. Uh, that was not unusual for a lot of ancient Greeks to live to an old age. It's the olives and the wine. <laughs> the olives and the wine. Well, I've read many times where the Greek diet is one of the best. The Mediterranean diet, yes. That's right, that's... and one of the tastiest. Uh, I would um, tend to agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I love Greek food. I think you do, too. I do, too. Well, when we were first dating, that was our favorite restaurant in New York City. That's correct. Yeah. Up it was there, Rafina's what, on the up, Upper East Side. Uh, upper East Side, 79th Street, right? Around there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. But... Uh, wow. So he just kind of took over and... He was one of five that took over after the original five were treacherously killed. No one should have made it back. Over half of them made it back. 60, 70% of them made it back. Yeah, the fact that they weren't captured. Even. And they fought. They had to fight a lot of battles. They had to, they, had to they must have been exhausted. Right. They were definitely probably changed human beings by the time they got home. I'm sure of that. Uh, man for man, ancient Greeks were great warriors. They were some of the best soldiers of antiquity. Well, the Spartans, for sure. And the Athenians. The Spartans emphasized the army. The Athenians emphasized their navy. That was a big difference between the two. It's like the army-navy game coming up this weekend. Well, I didn't think of that as an analogy, but that's pretty interesting. And it is coming up this weekend, and I always like watching the Army-Navy game. Yeah, I do too, actually. And uh, so there you go. Wow, That's the Anabasis, the March of the 10,000. Now, I'm just curious, how time-wise, how far away was this from, say, the movie 300? Oh, uh, 300 uh, deals with the Battle of Thermopylae, which was fought in 480 BC in the early part of the Persian Wars. So this is coming 80 years later. Okay. Uh, no one would have been really left alive by this time. But that involved the Persians as well. Oh, that involved, that's when uh, the one time that Greece united to fight against the common foe, the Persians. Uh, but they no sooner beat the Persians than they engage in their great civil war, the Peloponnesian War, and rip each other apart. Ancient Greeks, uh, uh, there's, there's some strange things about the ancient Greeks, even though they're such an important feature in the foundations of Western civilization. One of the strangest things about the ancient Greeks, and this was this was a mystery to the Romans and others. The Romans actually admired the ancient Greeks a great deal. The ancient Greeks did not return the favor. They generally did not like the Romans. But the Romans, like most people, looked upon war as a cruel necessity, and the Romans waged it very well. The Greeks loved war. The Greeks thought that war represented the height of human activity where all the virtues could be manifested. It was It's a very strange attitude toward war that is almost unique to ancient Greece. Wow, I'm so glad that didn't... Prevail in, in Western yes. civilization as a whole. <laughs> but that's... They were a, a very great people, and uh, Xenophon was certainly one of the greater writers. 
Well, and I'm so glad that he wrote about it. Otherwise, we may not have known. That's right. That's right. And it's probably one of the most reprinted of all ancient Greek works, along with some of the uh, plays, along with uh, Herodotus, uh, Herodotus wrote a history, uh, Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, which is a masterpiece. Okay, so let's move on to candidate number two for staying alive. Yeah, this is an amazing tale of survival. This deals with Sir Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic Expedition from 1914 to 1916. Sir Ernest Shackleton was born the same year as Winston Churchill, 1874. And he went into the Navy. He became very familiar with ships, with all of that. He, he fell in love with the idea of spending time in Antarctica. Antarctica at this time was just beginning to be explored. So I guess there were already writings about Antarctica? Even uh, not very many. Um, uh, there was almost no exploration of Antarctica until around... But it 18... hadn't been mapped, obviously. No, yeah, it hadn't really been even that much mapped. There was... So how did he come across this? Well, it's interesting. As far back as ancient Greece, it was assumed by writers like Aristotle that there had to be some kind of southern continent at the very base of the world. And that turned out to be correct. But nobody really came across Antarctica until the 18th century. I think the first that came across Antarctica was a Russian, you know, like in the 1820s or something like that. No one had ever really seen it. Uh, it might have been a little earlier than that or come close to it. I said the 18th century. It might be the early 19th century. And uh, so Antarctica only begins to be explored around 1900. In wow. fact, uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton, who would only have been about 25, 26 years old, went on an expedition with Scott, Sir Robert Scott. Then he went on a second expedition uh, where he came within 97 miles of the South Pole. There was a race to see who could get to the South Pole first. And he lost. And But the fact that he got within 97 miles, when he came back to England, he was knighted. For uh, that? Oh yes, Even it was. He, a, did, he it, lost. It was no. It was a great achievement. I mean, seven hundred, eight hundred miles. Yeah, but somebody made it all the way, didn't they? Well, there was a race to the South Pole by the Norwegian Amundsen and by the Englishman Scott, and Amundsen beat Scott by a month to the South Pole. He made he made it in December of 1911, and Scott made it in January of 1912. But Scott and all his men died because they did. They ran out of supplies. They froze to death. They'd reached the South Pole a month after Amundsen. That must have been such a bummer to see the Norwegian flag when you wanted to put the English flag, the Union Jack, there right. first. But but that's so tragic. Yeah, it is very but tragic. But wait, so Shackleton obviously was not on this No, ride. he was not on that expedition. The expedition, that what Shackleton, once the South Pole was reached, uh, Shackleton had a new idea, and he felt this would be fantastic to do, and that would be to be the first party to cross the Antarctic continent from one end to the other, you know, go across the South Pole to the other end of the continent. That does not sound like fun to me. Oh, no. I'm, just for our listeners, to give you an idea of the size of Antarctica, the United States, including Alaska, is three and a half million square miles. Antarctica is five and a half million square miles. It is immense. It is... I, I mean, that, that sounds impossible. Well, it does. But he, Shackleton was someone... <laughs> <laughs> who uh, welcomed the impossible. And he made preparations for this. He got uh, all kinds of funding. Some very wealthy people helped to fund the expedition. The British government gave him a small amount. The Royal Geographical Society, even a smaller amount. He bought a Norwegian ship that had just been made, which he christened the Endurance, uh, paid $67,000 for it. That was back, a lot of money back then. Back in 1914, yeah. It's estimated 
when Alfred Lansing wrote about this expedition, and the expedition is simply, I mean, the book is simply called Endurance, named after the ship. It was published in 1959. The estimate in 1959 was that ship would have cost up to a million dollars to build then. So it, uh, it was Norwegian built. It was built very well. What happened was, just when Shackleton was ready to go in this expedition, and he had 27 men with him. So the expedition was 28 men, Shackleton plus 27 others. They had a cook. They had a navigator, they had a second in command, they had a lot of uh, sea hands and so on. Uh, a lot of men, they had a carpenter because they wanted to be prepared for everything. And they had some medical people too. They had two medical people, yes. So they're getting ready to go. They're getting ready to go and World War One breaks out. Oh, crap. They're ready, ready to go in August of 1914 and the war breaks out. Like That's really that very That very week. And... Shackleton, who was uh, very patriotic, uh, very much, uh, even though he was born in Ireland, he was Anglo-Irish, he was very proud of that, he was Anglo-Irish, but he was very pro-British. And he and his men felt they couldn't go on the expedition, they'd have to serve in the British military, they felt that that was their first duty. Well, they contacted the First Lord of the Admiralty to see what he would say, whether they should go or not, they didn't think that uh, they should. They got a message back from the First Lord of the Admiralty. Proceed. Wow. Go on this expedition. Make Britain proud. The first lord of the Admiralty at that time was a man by the name of Winston Churchill. Yay, Winnie. So they left in August of 1914, just when World War One broke out. They made their way to Buenos Aires. Then they made their way over to South Georgia Island, which is a remote island in the South Atlantic, uh, north of Antarctica. South Georgia Island's a little larger than Rhode Island, but it's much more rugged. The highest point in Rhode Island is 800 feet. The highest point in South Georgia is almost 10,000 feet. It was a whaling station. A lot of Norwegian whalers and others stopped there and uh, still is owned by the British, the little remnant of the empire. Oh, still? Yes, still. So by December of 1914, they left South Georgia for the Antarctic continent. Another ship was to come around the entire bottom of Antarctica, the other side of Antarctica, and lay supplies. This was the ship Aurora. And that's a whole story in and of itself. But the the plan was to march across the entire continent. Keep in so mind. So to get there, to land. To land in the west. Unload wet, and leave the boat there? Yeah, there would have been, yes, it would have been left there. The Weddell Sea is the part that they came into. The Aurora came on the other side of the continent into the Ross Sea. But... As the Endurance made its way from December to January, and they actually finally saw land around January 10th, that was very exciting. They saw the continent. All right. Just about the time they saw the continent, they got stuck in the ice of the Weddell Sea. The ice completely surrounded the ship, and the ship started to drift northwards as the ice flow would take it, and they had no capacity to break through. They couldn't steer it. They couldn't. Not really. Nothing. And so from January of 1915 until October, they continued to drift and drift. For and what 10 ha- months, they just sat on the ship? Yes, and what happens is it gets worse, okay, because the ice begins to crush the ship. So from January to October of 1915, they continue to go northwards. They, have no, they don't want to go northwards. They want to go southwards. They want to go to the continent. But they have no choice. The ice takes them. The ship has no capacity to steer. And uh, oftentimes they go out on the ice. They even played soccer and things like that. We have a photo of that. Oh, by the way, they cool. had a photographer along, a guy named Hurley. That was smart. And uh, yes, and his, some of his photographs are absolutely fantastic. 
And I would recommend to our listeners here the great work on 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 this, the Endurance, published by, uh, written by Alfred Lansing, published in 1959. He died in 1975, and his book went out of print, and it never really sold that much. And it's only after his death that it was rediscovered. And beginning in the 1980s, this work called Endurance about the Shackleton expedition just took off and sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of copies. And I highly recommend this work. Uh, wow. to, uh, but it, to, the photographs are in there, right? The fo- they have many of the photographs taken by Hurley in, in the work Endurance yeah, by Alfred Lansing. Anyway, by October 27th of 1915, the ship was so damaged, so... They it was were probably sinking, of, wasn't it? Well... Shackleton ordered them out of the ship. They had to go onto the ice. They took their three rowboats with sails, lifeboats, um, the Care, the Docker, and the Wills, and they they had to haul these on the ice. They had to haul food. They had to haul. They had dogs. They started with sixty nine dogs. Sixty nine. Sixty nine. And so, I mean, this was an enormously well-planned expedition. This was something that was in the making for a long time. But I guess he never anticipated this. No. He was, it was interesting, when, when they got to South Georgia, he was told by some of the Norwegians that they had never seen the ice so bad in the Weddell Sea, and uh, Shackleton made the decision to go on anyway. The Weddell Sea itself, this has nothing to do with the continent, the Weddell Sea is almost a million square miles. It's the size of the United States east of the Mississippi. And this is the sea they're stuck in, all right, wow. with just vast horizons and nothing but ice. And, I, and their plan was, once the ship... He ordered them off the ship in October. November 21st, the ship was completely sunk. They have pictures of it and so on. They watched the ship, just the ice just crushed it. Oh, so they just got off the ship and They got off the ship in October right 27th, and by November 21st, the ship sunk below So the they ice. didn't move. Well, didn't move very much. Their plan was to just stay on the ice until they got to, to open sea and then take these three lifeboats that they were hauling around to a near island like Paulet Island or Snow Hill Island. But what happened was they kept drifting north and they never saw open sea. And so they're out on the ice. They have to kill penguins. They have to kill seals. They're running out of food. They're on this ice, which is perilous. The ice can crack at any time. They can go into the sea. And it wasn't until early April, April 9th, that they got to the open sea, by which time they had gone so far north, Shackleton decided to go to an island called Elephant Island. So they knew they were going north, right? They knew they were going north, absolutely. Okay. And so on April 9th, they got in in their three boats that they had hauled for months and months and months, and they made it to Elephant Island. This was the first land that these men had stood on for a very long time. And Elephant Island was treacherous. It was not a place they could really stay. It was a very, uh, the mountains were as high as 2,500 feet they had a little spit of land that they could uh, live on. Uh, it was about 100 yards wide, uh, 100 yards long, maybe 30, 40 yards wide. It was... And it's still probably pretty cold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. And don't forget that winter in the Antarctic, as you go into May and June, you get into the deepest part of winter. Our June and July, which, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere is our summer, but not down there. It's the opposite. And that's another thing, too. Uh, there was a point where for 79 days, they had no sun, no sun at all. I can't imagine what that would be like. I've read many times where that kind of darkness affected sailors in such regions very adversely, someone insane. So they got to Elephant Island. They knew they couldn't stay there. So Shackleton made the decision that he and five of his men would go in one of the boats, the Caird, the James Caird, 
and try to sail 850 miles to South Georgia Island to get relief. Their chances, their chances of surviving were a thousand to one, if that. Wow. They survived. Shackleton left on April 24th from Elephant Island with five of his men, and they made it to South Georgia Island approximately the 10th of May. I think it was around the 10th of May. They encountered the South Atlantic. Has, so that didn't take that long. No, it didn't. They had a great navigator named Worsley. Can you imagine trying to pinpoint this little island in the vast South Atlantic? It's really like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Without modern-day right. GPS. And they did. And the South Atlantic has the most vicious seas in the entire world. It's very well known for having the most tumultuous seas. There were descriptions sometimes where waves would be a mile wide. Wow. Yeah, 60 feet high, 70 feet high, 80 feet high, and so on. And they survived. They made it to South Georgia. Only those five? Well, six, if you count Shackleton. Okay. Because he left 22 men on Elephant Island. And, of course, they had to continue to to kill penguins and seals and so on. Just to survive. Just to survive. No vegetables, <laughs> no no sweet treats or anything like that for them. It was a pretty steady diet, but they had to. They had, to, they had no choice. They had no choice. When they got to South Georgia Island, finally, in early May, they were on the wrong side. So Shackleton and two of his men had to climb these extraordinarily high mountains on South Georgia Island and make it to the other side to get to the Norwegian Why whaling station. Why couldn't they just sail around it? They couldn't. The seas prevented them from doing so. They were just, they were lucky that uh, they were lucky that they made it to the south side of the island. People are amazed not only that they made it from Elephant Island to South Georgia, but that Shackleton and two of his men could climb over these mountains to get to the other side, to the Norwegian uh, whaling station at Stromness. And So how long did that take? Uh, it took several days. And they were, the, the next time anyone climbed, went over South Georgia Island was in the late 1950s, by which time they had all, all kinds of modern equipment which helped them. It's amazing. This is miraculous the way Shackleton did this. He never gave up. And he said he would save all his men, and he's going to. Don't give it away. When they got to the other side, the three of them were filthy. They hadn't taken a bath for months and months and months. And Norwegians were just stunned. When they saw these three men, they just, where did you come from? Who? Wh how, what are you doing here? And Shackleton himself said, I am Shackleton. And they knew who he was. And there was a Norwegian who knew him. And the Norwegians were just blown away by when they learned what Shackleton had done, how these men had survived on the ice. I mean, in the endurance. And then when it was crushed, they were on the ice. And then they made it to Elephant Island. And then Shackleton made it to South Georgia. And they were stunned. There was, was uh, Shackleton and the two men who made it across South Georgia. Uh, after they took a bath and all of that, they had their first real meal in a year and a half. And all the Norwegians lined up to shake their hand. They were just stunned that these men achieved this. Well, Shackleton has to get a boat to go rescue the rest of his men. I was going to say, those other guys are still He stuck. made four attempts. The four first, attempts? The first three attempts were turned back because of ice. And it was only on his fourth attempt. Keep in mind, he left Elephant Island in April. And it's only on his fourth attempt at the end of August, August 30th, that he reaches Elephant Island in a, bo a boat called the Yelko, which was uh, loaned to him by uh, Chile. And he saved his men. They couldn't believe it. They had given up. Yeah, after so many months, I would just... Yes, uh, they felt that if, if Shackleton didn't get back by late July, early August, that he had probably drowned. And Shackleton made out a will before he left. Because they had no way of knowing. Right. But on the 30th of August, 
the men on Elephant Island, saw the ship, and Shackleton came close to shore, and all 22 men were, were saved. Shackleton saved all of his men, every last one of them. It's That's one of the great adventure stories of all time. Sir Ernest Shackleton. And I highly recommend the movie with Kenneth Branagh as Ernest Shackleton. It was made in uh, 02, I think. And it's uh, it's riveting. And I think uh, Branagh plays Sir Ernest Shackleton. In fact, they, they look very much alike. If you look at photos of Shackleton and then Kenneth Branagh, they, they look like they could be brothers. But Shackleton made a fourth expedition after all of this. Uh, I can't imagine he'd want to go on a boat again. Well, this, I time, he, this time he died on South Georgia Island uh, in 1922. What was his goal this time? His, t- his goal was to go uh, to Antarctica again and uh, cross the continent. So did he actually make it to Antarctica? He was in the he was on the ice. Oh, he, well, in the um, first expedition he went with Robert Scott, he did. And then the second time, that's why he was knighted. This was 1907, 1908, something like that. This is when he came within 97 miles of the South Pole and uh, then had to turn back. So this is a man who lived life on the edge. And uh, I think he pushed himself so much. And if you read Endurance, the work by Alfred Lansing, uh, what these men went through, it's, it's unbelievable. Shackleton died of a heart attack at the age of 47 in 1922. Well, think what his body endured. I know. I mean, he, he put his body through so much. When his wife found out about his death, she said, bury him on South Georgia Island. That's where he belongs. And that's where his grave is to this day. And his second in command, Frank Wilde, eventually made his way all over the world, South Africa and so on. But eventually Wilde's ashes were placed right alongside Shackleton's on South Georgia Island. The two are buried right next to each oh, other. Oh, that must have been in his will, I guess. I don't know who made that decision, but uh, I've seen the, uh, the gravesite. South Georgia Island is one of the most isolated pieces of land in the world. Yeah, I can't imagine a lot of people go to visit. Uh, no, it's, I don't think it's inhabited year-round by anyone. I think that there's just a temporary summer residence there and so on. It is truly remote. Because even in the summer, it's probably 32 degrees. Oh, yeah, pretty cold. And as, as far as being on the ice and so on, there were many times when it was minus 15, minus 10. I mean, just the fact that they survived I know. that. And the, what really surprises me is that almost, I mean, there was the young the young stowaway named Blackborough. He had to have his toes amputated because of uh, frostbite. But He was a stowaway? Yeah, that's a story in itself. There were supposed to be 27 men on the expedition, but a few of the men stowed away uh, when they were in, I think it was Buenos Aires before they took off for South Georgia. They put this kid someplace in the ship. And um, so actually it turned out to be 28 men and Shackleton was so angry because he had prepared for 27 men. And he told Blackborough, he said, if it comes to a point where we have to eat each other, you're going to be first. Yikes. (laughs) This is something else I want to mention about Shackleton. Everyone admitted he was an extraordinary leader. They called him boss. No one really questioned him. Uh, one of his men said he was the greatest leader he had ever seen. Well, yeah. Any Anybody who could save all his men under those circumstances? Right. Well, as one writer said, for scientific exactness, Scott, for speed, Amundsen. But when you are completely out of hope and you have nowhere to turn, get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Shackleton saved every one of his men. I think it's as great an adventure story as I've ever read. It's right up there with the 10,000. Yeah, I think those were two two good choices yep. for staying alive. Yeah. Although with Shackleton, he saved all his men. Yes. With Xenophon, he saved as many as he could. Yeah, right, as many as they could. Wow. Well, we could have done this in several parts because there's so many other great feats of survival Oh yes. throughout mm-hmm. the centuries. But we chose these two. We did. Yes. And here we are. We done? 
I think we're done. Yes, <laughs> but we're going to give a little teaser next time. We're just focusing on one person. Yes, focusing on one person, an individual by the name of Bonaparte, one of the most fascinating individuals in all of history. Napoleon, Napoleon. is uh, forever. He's immortal. I mean, heck, there's a dessert named after him, so he's got to be pretty. Oh, then we have to do it on a podcast on him. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. We'll have to do Beef Wellington, too, at some point. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay, so until next time, listeners, thank you for being here and sharing your time with us. And until we meet again. Read The Anabasis and read Endurance. They're both works worth reading. We'll link it in the show notes. Okay, we'll link it in the show notes. So stay well, stay safe. Goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at Historically Speaking Podcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs>